Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate, everybody. I am your host, Aaron Strand. I want to thank you so much for tuning in as we approach our second and final shoot for Withdrawal. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Instagram, uh, the film on Instagram, that is, with at Withdrawal Film. And if you've been enjoying these interviews and updates, please be sure to rate and review on whichever podcasting app you use. Hit us with the five stars. Leave a few nice words. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, today, my guest is a dear friend of mine, and I feel so honored to call her a collaborator uh, on this film project as well. Jeannie Heaton is an artist and yoga teacher based in Athens, Georgia. Now, I first met her at Fuel Hot Yoga in Athens, but soon learned that we had more in common than I could have ever imagined. It's one of these like strange parallel lives type of type of type of circumstances. Anyway, she is currently playing the role of Edith, a mother struggling to come to terms with her daughter's addiction in my film Withdrawal. And I'm just so grateful that she took the time to talk with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie Heaton. Jeannie, how are you doing today? Erin, thank you. I'm great. Thanks for that beautiful intro. I'm wonderful. I'm grateful to be here. And thanks for asking me to not only be a part of your podcast, but casting me as Edith. I'm so excited. Oh, absolutely. You absolutely blew me away with your audition tape. Um, it was such a joy and, and like really unexpected because like, you know, it's like we I, I knew that you had this incredible training, which like we'll get into and this incredible background. But it, it wasn't it wasn't like it didn't what wasn't on the forefront of my mind as I was like creating the role. So and you really advocated like, hey, I want to send you a tape. I want to send you a tape. And uh, I'm just so glad that you did because I saw it. it was just like, oh, my God. Oh, Aaron. You know, can I tell you that story? So when you had come to Athens to do the podcasting workshop, which was incredible, I had signed up for that like a month before. That morning, I was like, oh, I don't know. Should I go do this? Like, oh, just pay the money, do the thing. Like, you need to get out in the world and do something other than yoga. Um, get in community, do something fun for yourself. And uh, that morning I did a little deep dive on your Instagram and I saw the post that you needed the mom for the the movie withdrawal. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So uh, when I showed up and I got out of the car and I was like, hey, you should, uh, you should cast me as that part of of the mom as in your movie. And you went, ah, yeah, yeah. And and that, nothing more was said. And I was like, oh, I'm such a dumbass. I'm so stupid, <laughs> you know? Cause you have like podcasting workshop on your mind. You're like, this is, this is, I mean, this is the first time you presented, which was brilliant by the way. And so I'm in there kind of beating myself up, you know, which is sort of a default for me. Uh, sitting at the thing going, why did I say, I'm so stupid, like, ah, oh, and then I was like, nope, nope, it's fine, don't even worry about it. And that night I went home and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if he really knows you're an actor. I don't know how much he really knows about your act. I mean, he knows that you've been writing and you're a writer, but so maybe you need to advocate. And I was like, ah, just gonna let it go. And then, you know, I heard some voices coming in, which is, you know, Michael, my my partner who recently died. Uh, well, not recently, but he's he was the guy I've been with for 30 years. And uh, I heard him say, honey, he's a New Yorker. You got to be in it to win it, babe. You got to be in it to win it. And I just heard that. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to send Aaron a direct message that says, hey, look, it's been 100 years since I've acted, but would you let me, you know, give me a shot at this? And you were like, hell yeah. You were so freaking cool. 
you replied like so freaking cool. Like, yeah, I'll send you the sides. Can you self tape? So I was, I was so, you're so cool. Oh man. Well, I, let's, let's start, let, let's start with that, that, that training that you had. Cause this is really like, I think our, like our first kind of like connection point, right. Which is that you in, in 1981, you attended the theater program at NYU uh, and like myself and our director of photography, Emily Marquet, you attended the Stella Adler Studio of Acting. So, yes. so first of all, what, what made you want to pursue a drama degree? Oh, so I, I grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania and in kind of like a small cold town outside of Latrobe, Pennsylvania, like Rolling Rock beer, um, home of the beer. And, uh, it was really like, you know, it, I saw my future as like, you know, double wides, coal towns, steel mills, you know, really, it really was like deer hunter, you know, um, growing up Jeez. in the blue collar, you know, my dad was like a, an engineer for steel, stealing how to cut steel. And my brothers worked in the steel, you know, just, it was just that vibe. And I was like, I got to get the freaking hell out of here as fast as I possibly can so that I can make a life for myself. And I was always involved in theater um, in high school and I did the play and I did the, you know, the musical and, you know, I would barely get the lead in the musical because I couldn't sing high enough, you know, for Jesus Christ Superstar. Anyway, but I got the lead in the play in my senior year. And then I, when I was listening to Millie's podcast, she was like, and then I talked to her, I was like, you won forensics, didn't you? Like with debate. And, uh, and I won forensics and I just can't believe actually, you know, all this kind of similar parallels. And then I, I, I auditioned for NYU and got into, actually, I went to Syracuse my first year. So I went up to oh, Syracuse okay. and did um, the Arthur Storch program there for my first year. Met this really freaking cool guy. Oh, my God. Gorgeous boy, Josh Pice, um, who, uh, you know, lived in New York City on the Lower East Side. And he was graduating. He was a senior. And I was like, oh, shit. I'm going to New York. He's like, you're coming to New York. And I went to New York and I moved in with him on the Lower East Side, him and his mom. And uh, uh, we lived on 7th Street between C and D because I got into Stella Adler. And um, yeah, the rest is history. There you go. Wow. So so did you so you actually studied with Stella herself. I she did. was still alive. I did. What was that like? Oh, my God. The queen. The, the royalty. It was... Aaron, it was so, God, everything's true at once. Like it was crazy. She was ridiculous. She was incredible. She was amazing. She was like, like high on her own, you know, whatever fame. Uh, She was uh, rude, uh, mean, uh, disrespectful. Um, And then she would hold you up on a pedestal and tell you how amazing you were. She was, you know, she would endless lectures on tearing down Lee Strasberg, you know, uh, what, is, <laughs> what is he doing over there? It's absolutely ridiculous. Calling upon real memories. What a bunch of shit. We're not doing that here. This is your imagination. You know, like, so it was really, it was really cool. You know, like she was really, it was very intense. And um, I remember I did, her scene study was like, and I had to do some pre-imaginary physical work for a scene. I can't can't remember the scene now, but it was basically where, and I was playing a man um, in a war scene. I can't remember what it was, but I had to do all of this crazy stuff in that little black box. So we were right across from um, Carnegie Hall there. That was the old Stella Mm. place and um, on 59th or 57th. And um, 
I remember just like acting like I'm getting shot out, shot at and getting underneath the barbed wire and going through the war zone, you know, and Stella just going, amazing, amazing, amazing. You know, it's just such bullshit, honestly, Aaron. You know, it's like, <laughs> I look back at it, I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? But it was pretty incredible. And you and I know Ron Burroughs. We knew we knew yeah. Ron Burris, who was also he had probably more of an impact on me actually than Stella. Yeah. And then you went twenty years later or thirty years later. Yeah. God. Crazy. Crazy. Just just totally nuts. So Crazy. so did you did you finish did you finish uh the conservatory program? No. So I uh left Adler and transferred to ex- the experimental theater wing with Ron Argelander. And that was there right where you talk about being penniless and homeless sitting outside the NYU building, 700 Broadway. Isn't that right there? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where the ETW yeah. wing was. And when you told that story yeah. on the, everybody should listen to that podcast. I think it's one, uh, withdrawal one. And uh, that is exactly where I actually started to bottom out too. So at the same time, like myself, you were also uh, immersing yourself in the, uh, you know, the New York art and, and club scene. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, what was that like in the in the early to mid 80s? Incredible. I mean, you know, well, living on the Lower East Side at that time was just absolutely so dangerous. You know, I had to change um, my clothes to go in and out. And I would use a bike. I would bike out of there and lock it at 8th Street Astor Place to take the train up to to school or wherever I had to go. And it was so junky ridden and full of dealers that to get, so where we lived, where Josh's place was, was on 7th between C and D, which they call the Oasis block. But to get out of there, you had to go through C and B. You You had to go 7th all the way up to First Second Avenue, which was really, really very dangerous. Um, I mean, it was cool as shit though, because you had the Pyramid Club, you know, you had all the really cool, amazing rock and roll clubs going on, punk scene going on, Um, but it was also terrifying. Um, And so I did what you did too um, with the box, but where I got a job was waiting table at tables at this really amazing, cool place called Central Falls, where upstairs was um, the guy, Willie, who was the bass player for Saturday Night Live Band. Um, they, that So they had all of their after parties at Central Falls. And so I was thinking like, man, I have a ride. I am like yeah. I am like waiting tables. Now, mind you, I'm a waitress. <laughs> I, right, you right. know, like your story with the box. It's like I am not doing anything except like serving these people, like slinging drinks, and you know, trying <laughs> to meet, like trying to get an audition for Pretty Baby, or I won't say names, but doing you know some coke off the uh, top of the toilet in the bathroom with many a few peeps hanging out yeah, in the right. back. Yeah. So that was my beginning into like really um, starting my fantastic drug career. Had you used drugs at all, like growing up, like before getting the Lower East Side? And- no. In fact, one time I smoked pot when I was in high school, it scared me so bad. You know, in my family, there was a lot, a lot of addiction and violence and shit going on that I was like, there's no way I will ever ever throw my life away yeah but things can change real quick when you get to the city and uh and all of a sudden like cocaine's flying around like coffee and it also was like like you've written in the film that moment when um viv you know is like i just i just want to feel what you you feel that's that moment where you're watching people around you having these incredible experiences and so that's where i was like i just i just don't want to feel this pain you know i was i had a lot of trauma going up growing up as a kid so it felt like a relief you know just want to feel relief yeah and that is one of those things that's like really tough about acting school as well which like on the one hand it's like okay you're getting a degree in playing make-believe which is like somewhat ludicrous but the thing that's that is really hard is that like part of the 
particularly like Stella's process is like kind of trying to strip you down to like this raw nerve where your emotions are available and like cutting away the bullshit personality constructs that you inevitably like build up in your that's in your teens that's right because they they inhibit you from from playing a character right yes. you're you're already playing a character a character in your life right so trying to make you more accessible but that uh it's a very raw process and when you're a young when you're young you don't have the coping skills necessary to like sort of hold that space it actually like it ties back to you know something that ron burris uh taught me and is like the phrase of ron's that has stuck with me um my entire life uh rest in peace ron burris yes um but he, you know, he used to talk about that the greatest skill an actor needs to develop is having a talent for your talent. And what he was talking about was having the talent of basically practicing self-care as your creative talent is allowed to, like, run free, right? Yes. And, uh, and that that's the real task of a professional artist is that talent. It's not, it's not the talent that God gave you with. It's developing the talent to control, contain, and not let that God-given talent, you know, drive you crazy. Yes. And how, when you're filled with people who have harmed you, you know, growing up, And now you're asked to remove, like you just said, all of that so you can be a blank slate while at the same time accessing, like all I could do say in high school was to access that part of me for the tears, for the reaction, for, you know, that, because I don't know any other way to on the spot access, you know, these kind of big emotions that were needed especially as a young actor. And so when Ron Burroughs says something like, you know, a talent for your talent, like I didn't get that guidebook because I was the raw nerve just flying around New York City. And in many ways, New York City is like the perfect place for that sort of energy. But it can, I mean, but that, you know, it it leads you, it can lead you to some pretty dangerous places. So so you're in the experimental theater program, uh, or perhaps you leave at this point, you're, you're working at clubs, you're living in the Lower East Side, you know, what What happened next? I met this really beautiful boy who was working at Central Falls. Uh, long hair, motorcycle jacket, leather motorcycle boots. They would yell at him all the time that he couldn't wear that to wait tables. And he was like, fuck you, I'm wearing whatever I want to wear. You want me to wait? He was a really, really sought after kind of waiter in New York. I don't even remember back in the day when like waiters were like, there were waiters, there were maitre d's, there were certain people who were making names for themselves. And like, it was like, if you wanted this guy, you know, his name was Shelby. Um, God rest in peace, Shelby. Um, and the two of us were like, God, we were so in love, Aaron. It was so weird. And I took Shelby moved to London. He had a rock and roll band. I took off with him to go to London and um, just never came back to New York. At this point, had you decided that you were you were going to pursue music or were you just following the guy? I'm following the guy again. I'm following the glitz. I'm following the and the dark. You know, I'm following. He's rehearsing in these really cool Um, rehearsal studios on 47th street, 48th street, you know, where all the rehearsal studios are. And I'm just like, and he's like actually manning a rehearsal studio. And when we're not waiting tables, we're staying up all night. We're playing like backgammon all night. We're doing like crazy things, like a lot of drugs, a lot of Coke. And like when he had, when I met him, he had already had this decision to move his band to London because he thought that he could get a deal over there easier than in the States. And uh, so I had no plans of going with them. And then the way things worked out, he was like, you got to get over here. You got to come over here. You got to do this. And, and in the meantime, think about being my keyboard player. So I was like, Oh, Hmm, I could do that. I could do that. Look, I relate a lot to this. I mean, this sounds very like just late. My last two years of college slash like years after, uh, kind of New York experience, a lot of coke. Um, at what point? <laughs> at what point did your uh, did your drug taste uh, kind of develop uh, beyond just uh, just the coke? Yeah. So we. So I went over to London. He was staying um, just above this pub called the Hope and Anchor, which is actually where um, Sting, you know, 
uh, the police would, used to play. And um, he was staying upstairs with this chick. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, that was another reason I was going over there. I'm like, what are you doing with her up in the, you know, I don't know. Anyway, and um, I got there and there, when I get there, I find out that he's doing this dope and I find a syringe and I find the tinfoil and I find, you know, they're chasing the dragon and I find this little packet of thing. And I'm like, what are they shooting? Like, what is this stuff? You know? And I put my finger in it. He was actually downstairs doing something with the pub working. And I, I tasted this shit and I'm like, Whoa, what is that? You know? And I, and I put it, I put it aside. And then one night we're at this um, party, his, his bass player, he'd gotten a British bass player. Um, we were at this party. He was a big Coke dealer. Uh, we'd gone to this party with the gang of four and we're hanging out with them and they're all smoking hash, chasing the drag, you know, hash so big in London, everybody's smoking hash. And um, they're telling everyone that it's hash when in fact it was opiate oil. And they were squeezing it from a syringe, you know, on the thing. Uh, now, not not the Gang of Four guys. It was just a Gang of Four party. So let me get that straight. I'm just saying. And I'm like, had one hit of this thing. And I thought I'd seen God. It was like literally the arms of God were wrapped around me. So I never felt such comfort and love and acceptance and warmth. And what was really weird about it too was we were in this apartment where you had to put the 50p pence in to keep the electric on. So like the electric would go off and someone had to like scrounge for a 50 P, you know, coin and <laughs> so crazy. And everybody would, you know, we would be like so high, we're nodding out. And, you know, when you, we were itching and scratching and it was so beautiful. I, I just, I, mean, I have to be honest about my first drug experience because that's really, that's what I chased to oblivion, you know? Um, and I remember just trying to walk over cause it was my turn to put a 50 pence piece in. And I remember trying to walk over to get there and I couldn't, I couldn't get there. I, I couldn't. And, and I was just, it was like tripping. It was so crazy. Nobody slept that night. We got home. I remember they had to keep stopping. We were in a little VW bug and they had to keep stopping this bug so that I could puke just vomiting yeah. the whole way home like and you would throw up and then it would be like oh that was great like it's not the kind of vomit with a drink or a drunk or you're so sick you know it's right. the kind of no. release of even more endorphins you know god yeah yeah god. yeah and then we moved into it we squatted in this park in Finsbury Park right above a guy who was a morphine addict and in England you know, when you're an opiate addict, they they send you morphine in the mail. And it's literally stamped Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> and it's in the mailbox. And you're like, what? I mean, even the toilet paper is stamped Her Majesty the Queen. So, you know, I don't know how much weight you want to put on any of it. But uh, that, th that was kind of eye-opening. And he was, he had two little sweet little girls and he was a single dad and he was really strung out. And... I remember thinking to myself, you know, I can't mess with this drug ever again. I can't fuck with this again. Coke is one thing. This is another thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm never touching this again. Shelby and I made a decision that this was just too dangerous. You know, we'll just stick with the Coke. Keep it right there. Yeah. And everything went according to plan, right? <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> we stayed, we played out in clubs. We, we, no one could get their shit together. We had this weird manager. No one could show up. Everyone was hungover or drunk. One night we have this horrific fight because he thinks that I took all the coke, which more than likely I did and hid it somewhere. And he smashed his guitar, put his foot right through the fucking guitar. That's why when I read your film, I'm just like, what? Like he smashed his acoustic guitar, which was like his fate, which is what he wrote every single thing on. So now, yeah. you know, and that's like, in the, there weren't these little, wasn't so easy to just hook up your amp and, you know, like 
like sit there and work, you know, you had to go to the, 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 the rehearsal studio because that's where all the gear was. And I mean, it was really, it was really sort of the end of the band. Then we got this job waiting tables on King's Road. I was also working in a shoe shop on the King's Road. We were just trying to save up our money to get out of there. They had taken our passports. Um, they were getting ready to deport us. Finally, the word came down, you're deported, get out. And uh, so we ended up getting deported and we came back to the States and that was, I couldn't return to England for another nine years. No. Yeah. I'm glad you left a good, a good old fashioned trail of destruction. <laughs> there you uh, go. In your, in your yeah. Fuck uh, y'all. And the guitar. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> oh man. That's, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. So, um, so let's, let's like, yeah, let's keep it moving here. So that's okay. So you, you guys are back in New York and, and, yeah. and so I know a little bit of sort of where this is going, but let's get, let's jump ahead to, so is it with Shelby that you formed the band and. Yeah. And then we got a band, we formed the band and we moved in with his mom and dad on this Island in Florida on this barrier Island called North Captiva where the hurricane just came through there. Um, And we were living there and we were trying to make some music we were clean. We were, we were maybe drinking. We'd go down island. They call it down island. We'd go down island to get some coke here and there. But you know, pretty much we were doing we were doing really well there. And then we kind of wore out our welcome though. He didn't get along with his dad. And then we went to see my mom in California. We lived there for a while. It's living with the parents, you know, living with the parents, trying to stay yeah. clean and sober because we knew this was a problem. And then we moved in with my dad, and we made these little demo tapes, and we sent out. 48 blind demo tape submissions to record companies everywhere. And we got two responses, one from Arista uh, and one from Chrysalis Records and from CBS. And Chrysalis Records signed us and they gave us this $300,000 record deal. And we were like, and they gave us an apartment. We gave us this big loft in New York City, right above a, um, a bread factory, um, an Italian bakery right off Elizabeth Street. Wow. I know on, so on, on spring, we, we get a producer, we go, we make the record, we go to California to make the record. We're trying, you know, to keep our noses clean, but we just can't keep our nose out of the Coke. Um, and we end up, you know, making this album, which was two months in the studio, 48 track album. It's way too big. It was during the time of the late eighties, early nineties, Thompson twin sounds, you know, like it was, it was just, two 24 track machines hooked up way too big, like just a wall of fucking sound. So we're trying to get the record released. And the guy who's running Chrysalis records at that time is our, our, our A&R guy, this guy, Bruce Dickinson, not the Bruce Dickinson from heavy metal, but the, a different Bruce Dickinson, amazing human (laughs) being, beautiful human being, sober, clean human being, just our champion, um, adored us, loved us, you know, believed in us. And his boss was way into the Coke too much too, just big Coke time. And um, he didn't want to release our album. Um, and I thought it was all our fault. I didn't find out until I hooked, rehooked up with Bruce again years later that, John, you know, this guy didn't want to release our album and it was never coming out. And so when the album wasn't coming out and the money was all gone and the, you know, the drugs were drying up and we're like, God, man, what are we going to do? And um, we got this little drummer who was uh, doing heroin and he was like, look, this shit's going to solve your Coke problem. Like just, just all you need is 10 bucks. Let's go. And I was like, oh, here we go. And just having that previous experience, you know, I was like, huh, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, that's what happened. We just started snorting dime bags of heroin and we would, we kept that going pretty well. You know, we would be weekend warriors with it and then we would put it right. down and we would go through the chippy, you know, we would, we would, they call it a chippy when you're just like a little bit sick, the runny nose, the flu, like we just got to get through this day, man. If we use today, we're going to be done. It's going to be done. It's going to be over. And one day it was just, it was just too much. And we just, we just used and we snorted and then, and that was the beginning of the end. And, and again, this is another parallel to the movie where um, we're in that loft and everybody's hanging out and people are starting to shoot up and 
I'm like, I'm never shooting up, Aaron. I'm never shooting up. This, I'm telling everyone, I am never shooting up. And the next moment I know, I just put my arm out and I close my eyes and I turn and Shelby ties me off and that was it. And that was the beginning of the end. At this point, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? Because I know from my own story, there's this like, I, I thought I thought my life was supposed to be this one thing and like feeling the failure of that. And then I too, and another crazy parallel, like I, uh, I, I stopped acting to be a musician in New York. And in some ways, like it was just... Uh, it, it, looking back, it was almost like I just felt like uh, my my addiction like fit more neatly like into that box, or like I would I was a better drug addict musician than I was a drug addict actor because I was a I was showing up to auditions strung out and um and I I just knew that I somewhere deep inside of me knew that the the it was unsustainable, but that playing music seemed to be a more viable path uh, for that, and but then that didn't work out, and now it's just like repeated failures and disappointments and that's when the like fuck it let's just yeah. let's just do the thing that like I've I've really wanted to be doing all along which is just being a full-time junkie. Yeah. You know, I think you put it so beautifully like in the theme of the film is like when you have the flashbacks of this over these 12 hours of withdrawing kind of and everybody in the film is trying to go back and look at that moment like when did it all go wrong? Right. You know, when did it all go wrong? And what, what made what that decision to just, it, it's not even a moment of, ah, fuck it. Let's just get high. It's so much deeper in that. It's like, I'm a failure. You know, I, I had such high dreams and goals and, and I just don't know how to do it. You know, I, I thought I was doing it right. Like I thought, you know, and, and, you know, you can get into the whole medical piece of like, you know, well, no, you know, once you release these things in your brain, these uh, endorphins and everything, you know, then you just need more and more and more. But, you know, a lot of people do opiates and that doesn't happen to them. You know, I think there's just this internal pain that's so deep, you know, that, and a disconnect, that moment of disconnecting from my dream, putting the arm out like that, that moment, that moment is what I think your whole film is exploring, actually. And can we get it back, man? You know, is it too late? You know, is it ever too late? You know, that's why that opening little story of talking to you in the parking lot and then advocating for myself, it's like, fuck, girl, like, it's, it's never too late, you know? And if I buy into that, I might as well just put the arm out again. It's something that I struggle a lot with in that the desperation uh, to chase my dreams of becoming an artist, it was the same stuff that fueled me as a drug addict. And in some ways, the like, like you said, like that final sort of like tipping point over of like, I'm just going to be a junkie now was it was like a relief from like the burden of that dream, which had become yes. so oppressive. But after, after getting sober and after getting out of, out of that life, feeling uh, this sense of like that the opportunity was lost and it's like never coming back. And like some of that, because like some of that magic desperation that, that led to early success or like early hope, or at least that's how my brain. Yeah. Being 20 in New York, <laughs> trying to live your dream, Stella Adler. And I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah <sighs> getting record deals, like doing like, like having these crazy opportunities, like come, like come to you. Uh, and, and it, it's happening effortlessly. Like why wouldn't it happen all the time? And then, but <laughs> that it hasn't happened all the time since coming out of it. And then it's like this weird game in my head, which is like, I know this is my, the disease of addiction talking to me, but it's like, well, if I, if I was using again, like would these opportunities like come back? Or like, would I, would I regain that gift of, of like fucked up desperation yes. that led me to like into these situations in the first place, you know? Would that first hit be like that first chase in the dragon? you know, in London, you know, like I am just wrapped in God's arms. And, you know, the sad part with what we're talking about is, you know, for you and me, if it still worked, 
we wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast. We'd be out there in the street. Hell yeah. You know, <laughs> fuck yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, that connection that the drug instantaneously gave me and the relief from the pain of me on me, so much me on me, ends up not working anymore. And you need more and you need more. And I'm up to 200, you know, $300 a day habit, 22 bags of dope a day, you know, plus the Coke just to stay up and then the Xanax and then the everything else. And now I can't get any more money. And now everything's gone to shit. And I got to go get on a methadone program, man. Nine years on a fucking methadone program, you know, because now I can't afford it. Now I'm in liquid handcuffs. You know, and yeah. now I'm just like, and then that's where I started a really vicious Xanax habit, you know, which is like, you know, medically assisted treatment. I am, it, it is such a double-edged sword. And I listened to your beautiful podcast with the, the lovely uh, doctor from Emory. Um, yeah, and, Dr. Vatisse. Yeah. Oh my God. Like this is, we are in a situation right now with fentanyl where if we don't have medically assisted treatment, you know, when you said 10 people are dying every hour from opioid addiction, that doesn't even include alcoholism. It doesn't even include other drugs, you know. This is opioid dependence. And so when that many people are dying, you know, we have to have some kind of stopgap. But at the same time, methadone, people listen carefully, stops working too, you know, so then you start adding other shit with your methadone and your psych meds and they got you on this and like eventually am I just going to all of this stuff from the outside in was me just trying to get back to the place before I ever chased that first dragon <laughs> was just me trying to get back to a place of normalcy where there's no, you know what I mean? Just a place of, you know, if I could just have that moment back, you know? And so now I got to get off everything if I'm going to try and figure out how to connect to people and myself without a substance, you know, and make art again and write again and tell stories again and help other addicts, you know, because this stuff is, we're, we're, we're dying out there, you know, it, it, Athens. Yeah. This isn't pretty here. Well, real quick before we kind of move on to like sort of the, yeah, that like recovery, yeah, recovery and hope side of things. No, no, please don't apologize. I, I still just like, I can't even wrap my brain around some of the parallels just between me and you because I know. So at some point you, you end up in the West Village um, yes. and, and and then eventually at the, at the Chelsea Hotel while you're still in active addiction, the West Village is where I bottomed out as well. Again, like so crazy. 30, 20, 20, 30 years later. It's and, so and, crazy. Yeah. So, and the thing that blows my mind is that I thought, I just thought I was so fucking unique. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was so special. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was so special. Well, I met this really cool. Again, I meet a guy. God damn. My story sounds weird. Um, I meet a guy who's really freaking cool. And uh, he's got an apartment and in the West Village at 45 Christopher, right next to Stonewall, right next to the duplex, right? You know, and I'm just hanging out with him. He he goes to Central Falls a lot too, back in the day. And, you know, we have sort of a similar, we're just hanging out. And, um, and I'm with Shelby still in this Soho place. Everything's bottoming out for us. And um, this guy is like, you gotta, you gotta get out of there. You gotta get your shit together. You gotta get off. You got to get off all this shit, you know, you're any, and he did Coke once in a while. Right. And, um, so now I like, see you later, baby. I'm out of here. And I move in with this guy and I use the Coke to cure my dope addiction. <laughs> like, so, now, <laughs> so I'm doing so much Coke. Brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm doing so much coke because I can't, you know, trying to get off the dope. But of course, as we know, I'm going back to my love. I'm going back That's to my right. love, you know. So I get back on dope and he's like, look, you know, he he's he was my total enabler. 
I mean, man, this guy, it was brilliant. He, he, he was great. He was sexy. He was hot. He was older than me. He took care of me. He, um, you know, gave me all the money I wanted. All I had to do was cry and scream and stomp and, you know, just manipulate and be basically a horrible person. I stole from him, like, you know, and finally, man, he put the hammer down. He was like, well, first he sent me to this guy in Jersey to do a rapid detox, like in the South of Jersey. They put me under six hours under anesthesia and give me Narcan, Aaron. Oh my God. Six hours. And they tell me I'll be able to go back to work in two days. What? Six hours under anesthesia and for a month, for a month, I could not walk, move, do, it was the worst thing that had ever, I mean, ever happened to me. Um, I went home in like a wheelchair and diapers. Uh, it was really, really, really bad. And then of course I didn't have a program. I didn't have, you know, 12 steps. I didn't think I needed any of that. I thought I was cured and I got a year because they put now on pellets in the back of my arms, you know? Um, yeah, they like put, they like cut and put these little pellets in there so that even if you were to use, you wouldn't be able to be get high because it's a blocker, it blocks the yeah. opiates. And uh. so one, they put one for six months and then they did one here for another six months. And then that New Year's Eve, I'm cleaning out, you know how they, they have the, the idea that you clean everything New Year's Eve for the fresh start of the new year. And I'm going through the closet and I found a package of dope, five bundles of heroin. Oh man. Five bundles, 50 bags of heroin in, uh, that I had stashed that I forgot about. I'm only going to just do a teeny bit. I mean, I don't want to die like red hot chili guitar player. You know, I'm just thinking I'm going to do a teeny bit, just a teeny bit. Three days later, that shit's gone. <laughs> and I'm right back out there. That's crazy. That reminds me, I was, um, I had less than, 30 days clean, yeah. but, but in, in, in recovery, like in, it was very, I wanted it really yes. bad and, and had, and was working a program and I had been through an out, uh, an outpatient detox program. And, uh, I was signing up for a, a job online to be an SAT tutor and I needed, uh, like some piece of identification. And I was, uh, so I, and I was trying to find some, uh, my, my social security card or something. I was digging through my wallet and, um, and a half gram of Coke fell out that had been stuck up. way up into my wallet that I had like, I'd like that wallet had been in my pocket through detox or through, or through rehab oh through everything. <laughs> and it fell out on the table, like in front of me, I was, and I was at my parents' house alone by myself. And, um, and yeah, and you know, that was, it, it turned into the moment of like, uh, that it gave me so much hope because, uh, I called, you know, Someone I called the help. guy who was, called I called the guy who was helping me. Wow. And I said, Aaron, hey, that's I said, so amazing. Called him. Yeah. And what was crazy is like the, like, just like they promised me the fucking, the voice popped into my head of like, it fell on the table and it was like, pick up your phone. You know what I mean? See, I had no tool. I had nothing. And it, for me, it was like, I found that and I was like, oh my God, thank God. I don't have to live like this anymore. This pain is too much. I had no tools, you know, nothing. And so, and then it wasn't shortly after that, I ended up on a methadone program. He kicked my ass to the curb. He's like, I'm done. You got to go. You got to get out. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, mind you, during all that time, I was quote unquote, and I hate this phrase, a functioning heroin addict. So in other yeah. words, I was directing shows. I was directing one man shows. I was directing one person shows. I was in the comedy world. I was doing a lot of improv. I was at uh, taking um, acting classes at a place called Michael Howard Studios, which is like one of the best, one of the best acting teachers of all time. He uses all the methods. Um, I was really getting some skills. I was auditioning. I was, you know, I was trying to get back into the world. I did a film. I, uh, you know, putting up plays, getting barns, doing, doing the deal. And in the meantime, I'm in the bathroom at Michael Howard studios, just doing little skin pops. Cause I certainly couldn't have time to find a vein, you know, just, just keeping the, keeping the shit rolling, you know? And 
I had one girl that I was directing, my best girlfriend, Vanessa Hollingshead. I was directing her in her one-woman show. And um, I'd be falling asleep on the couch in my living room at 45 Christopher. Michael's in the other room. And she's like, you know, and at one point, like I had to come clean with everybody. Like what was going on with me? I just couldn't, I couldn't keep all the balls in the air anymore. I just came clean with everybody, kicked everyone out of my life. I'm going to be a junkie again. This is what I'm doing. Get out of my life. And she said, oh my God. And I thought I was just boring you. I didn't know you were high on heroin and nodding out. I thought my show was, was boring you. And I was like, oh my God, Vanny. And then, you know, the night I walked away from her show, I actually got arrested on the Lori side. Right. It was right after 9-11. It was right during 9-11. And I thought, you know, well, you can just buy drugs. No, all the cops are down at 9-11. You know, I can just Shit. buy drugs right out here, no problem. You know, I did want to ask you that because as, like, as I was running through my head, putting your timeline together, what was it like being an active junkie on 9-11? Because oh I, I was an active junkie during Hurricane Sandy, which like fucked my shit up. So I'm just curious, what was, what was that day like for you in New York? Well, living in the village, you know, that day I was actually... I was washing out some panties because probably who knows <laughs> who the fuck knows what's going on. You know, the junkies life. Right. And I'm hanging them out on this air conditioner vent, like kind of tucking it in the window and the vent and the thing of the AC. So they'll dry quickly, uh, quicker. And it's a crisp morning, September morning. It, and I got to get to my program. I got to get medicated. I got to get to the methadone program. And I would rollerblade all over New York City. I was, and um, I look, I look up and I see this little poof come out of the World Trade Center. Literally like just this little thing of smoke, like little poof. And I'm like, what the hell was that? And I was like, oh my God, did a plane? Just like a little, I thought it was like a little teeny Cessna that I saw fly into the World Trade Centers. So I'm like, Michael, Michael, get up. This is the guy. I'm like, get up. Like, some someone flew into the World Trade He's like, honey, you're hallucinating. You've got to stop doing all that coke. I'm God, stop it. Like, you know, because I'm smoking crack and he thinks I'm totally like geeking and seeing shit. And he's like, and I'm like, no. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And then I turn on, you know, the news and there it is. Like there it all is. So my first thought, and I'm so not proud of this people was, oh my God, I'm not going to get medicated. And it's so sad. My thought wasn't about, you know, what was happening. My thoughts weren't about, you know, people hurt. My thought wasn't about. To me, it just looked like a little thing of smoke coming out. I mean, this is my justification. <laughs> Actually, like, it's not a big deal. I, I got to get to my program, you know. Um, and so by the time I got to my program, they had blocked off 14th Street. My program was on 12th, right across from St. Vincent's, you know, 12th yeah. Street and uh, 7th Avenue South. And when I went yeah. rollerbladed up, they had all the gurneys out, you know, waiting. And I, we got in line for the program and they gave us all these take-homes because they didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought, oh God, it's Christmas. I get all these take-home bottles of methadone. How fun for me. Um, and, and then all of a sudden it started dawning on all of us what was really happening. That no one was coming, Aaron. No one was coming to the, to the gurneys. No one was, we were waiting and waiting to just see what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden we're looking right down 7th Avenue where you can see the world trade and yeah. you just watched one fall into the other. And that was when it hit me. Like we're done. We're finished. It's, it's over. It's, it's okay. You're, you, it's okay to die now. But that was my, that was my 9-11 day. That day is so bittersweet because it's also a moment of like, you got to get help. It wasn't until four years later I got really sick with uh, endocarditis from shooting coke, um, dirty coke. My heart got really sick and I ended up in the hospital on antibiotics for two months. And that was sort of, that started the beginning of the end of, you know, there were many other things, 
no money, you know, having to do things you got to do to make money as a woman, uh, living at the Chelsea hotel, doing those things. Um, you know, and it just all felt like, yeah, see, this is what you get. This is what you deserve. This is who you really are. You know, this is who you've been since you were abused and harmed since you were a little girl, like living it out now, you know? Um, and that's, it's just so sad. And I think that that's why, God, when I read your script, you know, just to bring it back to the script and get it off me for a minute, because it really is what this is about, you know, for me is like, you know, and when you sent me that text, like, you know, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if this is good enough. I don't, I'm like, man, just come back to your material, your source material, like your first principle, you know, or maybe it's your second principle. I can't remember why you're doing this, which is, you know, honesty, you know, to tell the story of like what, what, why you're doing this. And it's so, there's nothing extra in this movie, you know? Well, one thing that uh, the movie leaves ambiguous is sort of what happens next for for this couple. But you have an amazing what happens next. How long have you been uh, clean and sober now? In December, it'll be 18 years. 18 years. Uh-huh. Sober longer than I was using. God, thank God. Jeez. Yeah. yeah I just I, I just crossed that threshold myself. Isn't at, that at, amazing? Uh, yeah, I was an active addiction for ten, 10 years, and now it's like 10 and a half that I've been without. Without going into, you know. Too much, ex, yeah, because uh, we're here. Too much, too much detail. Yeah. Like, what, what was that like? And I also know that yoga was like a, a part of that story as well. Yeah. So what happened was I ended up having to go into a methadone to abstinence program because I just couldn't. I would try to kick it on my own little capfuls, you know, couldn't do it. I had to go in, um, and the jig was up and I had to go into a place where they slowly detox you off methadone. These places are very, very few and far between in our country. And, um, I was, you know, really blessed and lucky enough to end up in Jamaica, Queens in between a junkyard and, uh, Long Island Railroad tracks where every good junkie goes to die. Um, and uh, it's like, that's where they put us, man. That's where you end up, you know? Uh, um, and uh, it took me five months to get off the methadone. I stayed there another uh, 12. I stayed there 19 months because I had to figure out all the things. I had to figure out how to live. I had to figure out who I was. I had to, you know, let people help me figure all that out. I had to... And it, I didn't go in there all ready to get clean and sober either. You know, I wasn't like, you know, this was this was a hellish detox. I'm writing a TV show now called Methadonia, and uh, it's you know it was it was 20 women, 60 men. There were like 14 people there voluntarily. I was one of them. Most people were there beating a bed, you know, trying not to go back to jail. It was a very tough environment. It was jail where the inmates run the prison. And when I got out, um, uh, that same girlfriend, Vanessa, took me in um, and gave me a place to live. Uh, Michael was still in my life, but he didn't want anything to do with me. He was too scared. And Vanessa was like, come live with me. You know, um, we'll help get you back on your feet, which was amazing. At that time, she was like, you need to go to this writing class with Francine Volpe. You know, I was trying to write this play about Methodonia. And um, she was giving me feedback on the play. And she was like, look, I've been giving you the same feedback week to week, week to week, week to week. And you're not taking it. You're not able to hear me. And uh, she said, here's my feedback. You have to go to hot yoga with me, Bikram yoga. I was like, what? So it took me a while to get there with her because I had body image issues from shooting up in track marks. And, you know, I got there and that first class in that first Savasana, I was like laying on the floor, sweat dripping everywhere, everything coming out of my nose. I'm bawling, I'm crying. There's sweat, there's sweat coming out of parts of me I don't even know I had. I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> and I'm like looking at her in the front row in this little bikini, this hot little chick like doing yoga. And I'm like, what is happening here? And that little voice, the one you just talked about, the picking up the phone, the little voice inside of me just said, you got to bring yoga to the rest, every single addict in the world. This is your new mission. 
this is your job. And I had already been working, you know, 12 step program and things like that. Um, and this was like this, this was the missing ingredient as far as the body piece of yoga. You know, I was a walking head. I'd never thought much below, below my head because that's what alcoholics and drug addicts do. We live in our heads. And uh, so when I was connected, it was like that's that same connection of that God moment, you know, it was that same thing in that first Savasana. It was warm. I was being held. I was sweating. I mean, you had to work a lot fucking harder for it, but I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. It's here. It is. And it was healthy and it was, you know, and so I yeah. set out on that mission, man. Yeah. So fast forwarding to now you're, you're living in Athens, Georgia, you're teaching yoga, and then you also have this incredible program called One Posture at a Time. What? Tell me about that. So One Posture at a Time, I started in New York because I'd written this article in the New York Times about, you know, how my experience with uh, hot yoga, Bikram yoga, I got a scholarship to go to training for nine weeks to become a hot yoga teacher. And so to honor that, you know, one of my missions was to bring yoga into rehabs, detoxes, jails, wherever they'll have me, I'll go. And um, so I wrote that in a New York Times article so that I was like, because Aaron, now I got to do it. I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. You know, service, <laughs> service keeps me sober, but service hurts. You know, I mean, by that, I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable. It shouldn't be convenient. You know, it's not convenient. You know, the phone rings four in the morning. Someone wants to drink, you know, what all these things, it's like service isn't, it should, it should be push me out of my comfort zone, you know, but now I wrote this thing in the New York times that said, and now I'm going to blah, 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 look at me. And now I got it. And being in recovery, you know, I got to keep the promise because otherwise, you know how it goes for us. So yeah. I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I just, we started our little journey rolling yoga mats in little rolly carts all over New York, up and down the trains, taking them into treatment facilities. The first treatment facility I walked back into was the one I got sober in. The ability to like walk in with a yoga mat rolled under my arm rather than coming back in t as a rethread yeah, or yeah. retread or whatever you want to call it. Um, like coming back in like the right way through the front door. There are no words for, for what that meant. And then that first class I taught Aaron, there was a guy detoxing. He was like on five milligrams of methadone. He like hadn't slept for days and days. And he's like, I'm not doing this fucking yoga. Fuck you and fuck this place and fuck. And I'm fucking out. And I was just like me. That was me on five milligrams, you know, and I'm looking at it and I'm just like, okay, well, you know, just lay on your mat, let the words wash over you. It doesn't matter. I don't care what you do, you know, but you got to be here. You got to just lay on your mat. And I'm telling you, Aaron, by the end of the class, this guy is snoring. And I was like, if you motherfucker, one of you fuckers say one word and wake this guy up, I'm going to kill you. Everybody tiptoe, <laughs> tiptoe out of here. It's like the first time. And that moment was such a moment of grace. Like all these moments of grace started to, you know, I just started seeing them and I had never seen them in my life before, you know? Yeah. Um, so one posture at a time, I bring it into uh, a place here in Athens, you know, COVID really kind of screwed us all up, but we're kind of getting back on the, the horse back in there. We go three times a week and Nez Peterson helps me. Yeah. She's a teacher at fuel and Joe Lynn, um, who owns fuel, um, holds all these fundraisers and these amazing, things that, um, you know, are able to keep the mission going, the little fits and spurts and starts and fits and all the little things we've been through. Somehow we're hanging on and doing it. And, and fuel, fuel Hot Yoga in Athens, Georgia is literally the best yoga Aww. studio I've ever been to. Aww. Absolutely world-class in this, uh, you know, this small uh, Georgian town. It's just such a, such a, a, a privilege. As you look back on this just incredible story that you've shared with us today, you know, what, what are you most grateful for? Where does the gratitude come from for you? I think just being at peace and having freedom from bondage. I'm so grateful that I can roll over and, you know, not 
pick up a syringe and a spoon and, and, and that be the first fucking thing I do. And then, you know, grab a hairbrush because now I'm scratching. I got to scratch, you know, because the, the, the dope made me itch. And, you know, like the, the, those were the first two things I did every morning for years, for years or not have to wake up and run to the methadone program to get medicated, you know, like always having to like get a fix and get it in and get to the Xanax dealer, you know, like, God, I'm so grateful to not have those handcuffs, you know, the, the, we call them the liquid handcuffs, whether, whatever it is, that outside thing. Like I even watch my, my yoga, like am I, what, 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 how do I run to yoga? You know, am I running to yoga to escape, to not feel, to, or am I running towards something that is, you know, going to enable more freedom and the ability for more love and, you know, the ability to create community. That, that idea of, am I running from, or am I running to, is something that has haunted me even back to the, to the using days and has stuck with me ever since and is a question that I, I, that pops into my head quite frequently too. It's really funny to hear you say that. Cause that's one of the, one of those little things that has, has stuck with me for, yeah. for almost 15 years. And then add in there, do I need to just sit still? Yeah. Just sit still and breathe. You know, yeah. on that, when we were doing the shoot and you came over to me and you were like, I need you to just pull on your yoga right now. Just sit and breathe. Cause I'm going to tell you that, family dynamic I was like right back there with that like just get your fucking shit together what's the matter with you you know like being that person to Viv you know like like that it it was so and when you came over and you were like be still and breathe right now just breathe you know be still and breathe right now it was is really intense and um when Millie came over and was sitting with me, I was like, I was like, oh my God, I love you so much right now. You know, I just, I just, love, I mean, not actor to actor, but also Edith to Viv, you know? Well, the funny thing is, is that that was probably one of those moments where I was just telling you the thing that I was like, wish someone would tell to me, you know, oh, just, just, just and breathe, yeah. you know, because I I was uh, I was pretty stressed out during that scene. Uh, that was definitely like my most stressful moment on set from the first few shoot days. Um, and it was after that, and really when I when I called you on the phone after we had we had. Oh, I was so happy you called me because I didn't know. You know, it's like I heard the podcast where you were like, you know, I didn't know if I I had to move to the, and I know that's how it works, you know. But you were different. You called, you know. Yeah, it's it's a terrible feeling being an actor coming onto a set like try you know doing your best to like pour your heart out and then the production's like all right moving on and they just like storm out they're just like like a bumbling mess like in a cartoon where it's like a pile of dust with like arms and legs like, <laughs> they like move on to the next yeah. thing and you're just like all right guess i'm gonna go home uh like no applause no 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 conclusion to, the, to your performance. no curtain calls no yeah no no flowers no nothing and so and i hate that feeling i remember turning to jade i turned to jade and i was like Jade, was was it okay? She was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> of course." You know what I mean? Because I was like, <laughs> she was awesome. Oh, Jade, Jade Fernandez uh, uh, is a great mutual friend of ours, um, who is serving as our our second AC and uh, just all around like production queen. Uh, is is amazing. And you know your your crew is fucking dynamite. Oh yeah, they're amazing. You know they understand the. The mission, they're really cool. I got to have some really cool conversations, man. You know, cool. they're real, real honest, cool people. You know what else? And yeah. I also want to, I'm really grateful that you gave me an opportunity. I mean, that that's really awakened this side of me that like, I'm like, Jade, I'm coming to that improv night. I'll see you there. Jade, I'm coming. I'm going over there and I'm doing this and I'm starting a writer's group. And you'll say, I'm just, you know, I just want to. It's really been a, a big shot in the arm, no pun intended, um, <laughs> <laughs> literally to like, like, what are you doing, girl? How are you living, you know, um, with your art? Like, how is your art artist life? Like, I get to create in yoga for sure. It is beautiful creation of, you know, of it's fantastic, but it's not 
it's not my uh, voice in, in, it's a yoga voice. It's not my, uh, my other voice that I want to help others with as, as, as you are. That's amazing. I mean, you've got an incredible story. You've got so much talent and uh, follow your impulses till forever. <laughs> Thank you so much Aaron, for making this movie, for trusting your, your gut, you know, and not giving up because you have a lot of reasons to give up. <laughs> you do. We just all do. You know, you think it's the easier, softer way until you lay your head on the pillow at night. Which is, again, the theme of the whole film, people. This film is going to be great. Get ready. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you, follow you? Where can they keep up with One Posture at a Time? How can they support your work? Um, So I'm on the gram at One Posture at a Time. Um, My last name's Heaton. So I'm also on Facebook, but it's Jean Ellen Heaton. But I will put it out there that I'm very transparent. I do get... Um, messages. If anybody is struggling with addiction, if anybody needs help, if anybody's like wants to try hot yoga and come to fuel and you're trying to get off some substance or, I mean, maybe it's just like, you know, you're going through a bad divorce or anything, you know, with the suicide rate and all of the things, guys, don't stay to yourself. You're not going to fix it yourself. You know, my phone number is kind of splattered all over my social media. Might not be so smart, but there it is. Um, and that's that's purposeful because I want people to be able to reach out to me um, and 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 have a place to go. Um, Fuel is an amazing community, um, and there's many other things I do to stay sober. Twelve steps. Um, so please just don't hesitate. I'm here for you. Um, Athens, you know, we're, we're here for you, man. Aaron's here for you. We're all here for you. You know, that's what this is about. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for saying that. Thank you for all the work you do. Thank you, everyone out there who is listening. As always, you can email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. We got some more good stuff coming up for you next week. And until next time, that's a wrap. There was Jordan Bob Ford, drank it out of a court in order just to suit. Frank James out on bail, drank it out of a pail, a juice of that forbidden fruit. And ever since then, all manner of men, the blind and the lame and the mute, the bankers and Turks, politicians and Turks, drank a juice of that forbidden fruit.